Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, September 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, activists across the state engage with voters ahead of the general election registration deadline. Then the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians uses federal aid to improve workforce development. Plus, the story of James Meredith comes to life in a new graphic novel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The next general election is less than two months away, and organizers across the state are engaging with voters ahead of the registration deadline October 10th. Yesterday was National Voter Registration Day, and it culminated with registration drives in all corners of the state. Many efforts focused on young voters in Oxford. Ruth Odell visited two schools and a community market, or rather community situation. The co-president of the Mississippi League of Women Voters tells our Kobe Vance exercising the right to vote is essential to civic participation. At this point, it, it, it has become clear that if we want to keep our voting rights, we've got to exercise them uh, and register and then turn out for elections as well. These were hard-won fights. I told a number of the high school's high school students at Oxford High School that the League of Women Voters has been around for over a hundred years and if you're female uh, we're the reason why you even have the right to vote Um, and of course at that time there were people left out even then um, that black people especially black women were left out and so it wasn't really until in the 60s that black women were able to vote so we and we've always been there on the front lines of registering people to vote and encouraging turnout. What's it like doing these community outreach events, especially with young Mississippians? Oh, so it's so exciting to be around them and uh, and to encourage them to participate in democracy uh, at Oxford High School, which just happened to be the place I went. But I know that it's true at Lafayette. The whole idea of college and career readiness has begun to change, and we also want kids that are, we want them to be active citizens and engaged in their communities and to understand what that takes. So that's part of being uh, college and career ready. 
Um, and so that, that really fits in with the goals and mission, purpose of public schools and public education, is that we're producing those kind of adults for the community. If you had a chance to talk to somebody who might not be registered but isn't sure what the first steps are to take, what would be your advice? Well, you can go to your city clerk, I mean county clerk, you know, at, the, at your local place, and they will register you to vote. Um, or you Google League of Women Voters in whatever community you're in and uh, see where, what, sir, what chapter is serving your community and email them or call them and find out where they could register to vote. I assure you that League of Women Voters people are going to come wherever you are if you need to register to vote. In the capital city, voting rights organization Mississippi Votes teamed up with students and faculty at Jackson State University for a registration drive. JSU staff member Keith McMillan says campus events allow students to gather in a familiar setting. I think it's really important that our young students understand the value of their vote. Um, I think that uh, by being here on, on the campus is really vital as well. Not only are our students uh, learning about academics and learning different other skills, we also need to inv- engage them in the political process also and helping them to understand that their vote does matter. And with their vote, they can definitely help to make changes and invoke changes in the city politics. What do you think the importance is of having this in a place where students get together all the time and, and making it to where some Instead of having to you know, go find them, it's easy for them to find y'all. Absolutely. Access is really important. Um, one of the things that I've learned by talking with some of the students here, um, you know, Jackson State is an actual voting precinct. And a lot of our students don't even know that yet. And so, uh, so it's my job as a faculty member, as a staff member, uh, to try to just educate our students, to let them know that the resources that they have are really right here in the palm of their hands, and they can really take advantage of it. Um, just a couple of years ago, we had nearly 2,000, 2,000 students that were registered, but only 400 of them showed up to the polls. Why? Well, we don't know yet, but like I said, it's our job to try to uh, create that engagement for them so that we can uh, minimize all of those uh, obstacles that they may have for getting to the polls. The registration deadline to vote in the November general election is October 10th. Coming up, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians uses federal aid to improve workforce and economic development. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner and associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, there's information you can use to help maintain a healthy lifestyle. Just search for Southern Remedy on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians is getting a boost from the U.S. Department of Commerce as it seeks to grow and diversify its workforce. The assistance comes in the form of a $5.8 million grant funded by the American Rescue Plan's Indigenous Communities Program.
John Hendricks is Director of Economic Development for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. Anna Denson is an Operations Manager. They share how this latest infusion of funds will be focused on their top priorities. Hendricks speaks first. Workforce development is our number one strategic priority from an economic development perspective. And we have had several workforce training initiatives ongoing for the past several years. Um, But what this grant funding will do for us is it will provide renovation funds for us to um, repurpose 50,000 square feet of available facilities on the uh, Choctaw Reservation that we are going to uh, ramp up a number of new training initiatives and programs to support um, workforce development uh, for a long period of time uh, at Choctaw. What are the positions and what's your goal in terms of getting people prepared? Uh, One is that we're up, we have, in addition to the um, um, companies and business operations that we have, the tribe also has 3 million square feet of buildings that we are responsible for maintaining. There's 2,000 homes on the reservation. So that led to the need to have more skilled vocational technical trades uh, positions. So so that's where the NCCER classes started. And so we took um, an existing need to have trained workers to do those those technical trades, and we uh, we have existing employees that we're allowing four hours a week to go to these classes to upskill, and so that is a win-win scenario. When they complete a training module, they get a pay increase, and the tribe is also getting a, a stronger workforce. We also are adding the uh, an IT component, so we've been doing some IT training already. Um, we have a very robust IT infrastructure within the tribal government and our healthcare system and our school system and our enterprises, and we just don't have enough IT professionals. So we've been doing, um, again, these classes we've built into the regular work schedule for existing employees to upskill them and, and the IT security plus um, uh, certification programs. And so we're going to continue to build on that as well. And then the same um, related to healthcare. We've got um, uh, the tribe has the tribal hospital uh, health center, and we've got multiple outlying clinics. It's a very rural community. We also have a nursing home, and so all of our healthcare um, operations are are understaffed. So we've got um, uh, identified trainings around the uh, healthcare uh, training and upskilling of existing employees and and new uh, high school graduates. What is the biggest challenge for? the nation at this point? Both of you can share in that question. Well, workforce development is uh, one of our biggest needs and opportunities. So the the tribe runs the uh, largest American Indian school system in the United States. So we have 2,000 tribal members that attend our K-12 schools. And we also have early childhood, uh, early Head Start and Head Start programs. And the tribe has a scholarship program. So for any tribal member that wants to attend college, uh, two-year or four-year or beyond, uh, the tribe has a scholarship program for them. But, again, today's workforce um, needs to be nimble, and and it's always 
changing. So we have to kind of build in a system of lifelong learning on the reservation. We need to be constantly upgrading the skills of the um, of the tribal members, and so that is why we're putting all of these uh, resources and uh, efforts into having a an ongoing workforce training center that's going to support existing workers. It's going to support the local community. And it's, again, focused on kind of the quick-changing certification-type programs that are that are less than two years and four years. We're filling that niche. Anna? Yeah, I agree. You know, we have um, a lot of available jobs, and, you know, they're needing specific requirements. And now a lot of, um, you know, um, job jobs now require some kind of certification, so we're trying to fill that and, and get the current employees that need these trainings um, to get these certifications for their employment or even to uh, upskill or get some kind of promotion or um, better their job opportunities on the reservation as well as off the reservation. Is there anything that I didn't ask you in terms of your economic development strategy moving forward? We have large needs. Uh, it's a rural community. There, the uh, Choctaw has eight separate communities, and they're all rurally located, and so it's expensive to provide those services um, at that scale. But but uh, other things that are ongoing is, number one, is broadband infrastructure. We are actively, um, right now, actually building out a broadband network that will cover the six main communities within the next 12 months. We will have uh, full broadband access at every house on the reservation and every government and commercial building on the reservation uh, within within 12 months. Um, and so we connected that to our workforce training center. Uh, we're offering training. If you if you have an internet connection at home, you can you can perform perform work at home. You can be a part of the remote uh, economy. So we're offering training to the community members around that and, and cyber awareness and uh, how to use the internet safely. And then the other is we're, we're um, strategically pursuing uh, diversifying our economy. So again, another um, highlight of the pandemic is when the um, when your tourism resources have to close because you're not allowed to have guests in, you realize um, you need a, a more diverse economy and business operations. So that's where we're focusing on the, the IT um, components because there are some businesses that we feel like we can get into um, that would support the diverse uh, revenue stream for the, the tribe, and it's not going to be uh, correlated with uh, tourism. So we're going to have a, a more stable and diverse economy as a result of this. Anything to add to that, Anna? We're doing outreach to like Boys and Girls Clubs or CPEC or local high school students too to start having classes like those or bring awareness of uh, positions like that uh, so where that, you know, instead of going to get a four-year degree, they can get, you know, HVAC tech certifications and still um, get in, seek employment within our tribe or in the local area. Because a lot of kids, you know, are are told of job opportunities or degrees, you know, go get a four-year degree, which, you know, it's, it is important, I agree. But, you know, those who, who kids, the kids who may be more comfortable being hands-on, uh, working on a, a, you know, an engine or uh, doing some kind of maintenance repair, and at least that will open up those opportunities for, for all kids. All right. Well, John Hendricks and Anna Denson with the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, you work in 
Economic Development. Thank you so much for sharing what you are doing uh, to better uh, the communities. And we appreciate your time in speaking with us. Thanks for having us. Coming up, the story of James Meredith comes to life in a new graphic novel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. In 1962, James Meredith desegregated the University of Mississippi, an action that was delayed by political maneuvering at the state and local levels and met with deadly violence when it did finally happen. Now Meredith's story is being told in a new graphic novel by author Aram Goodsusian, editor V.J. Shaw, and artist Bill Murray, published by the University of Arkansas Press. It's called Man on a Mission, James Meredith and the Battle of Old Miss, and it's the focus of this week's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums today at noon. Aram Goodsusian spoke with us ahead of the event, and he shares how they chose the graphic novel medium for the Meredith story and themes they hope to communicate to their audience. James Meredith is a unique figure. Uh, he doesn't necessarily fit into the traditional boxes in which we put our civil rights icons. You know, in some ways, he is a uh, quite a conservative figure. Uh, He really believes in sort of ideals of individual self-reliance, traditional values of manhood. Um, um, He he forefronts his Christianity as part of his his mission. Uh, And in other ways, he's quite radical. Uh, He thinks of his uh, um, mission in society to destroy the institutions of white supremacy. Uh, And he saw going to Ole Miss uh, in 1962 as, as the first step in this larger battle. He also has something of a of a mystical nature to him, or a uh, you know he, he he believes in what he calls his divine responsibility that he has this sort of God ordained mission uh, to accomplish these tasks, and he tends to put himself at the center of these struggles, uh, which makes him a, sort of a unique figure, something of an individualist, someone who didn't work well with civil rights organizations necessarily. Uh, so at times, Meredith has been you know able to inject himself into the national conversation on race in really important and significant ways. And in other times, he has been sort of uh, shunted aside, uh, and some of it is because of his own doing. Uh, so he's this, you know, sort of in some ways frustrating, in some ways quirky, but in other ways exceptionally compelling and admirable figure. He's, he's a paradox in a lot of ways. And so this particular book is directed toward youth. Uh, yeah, we hope to make it, I, we think it's accessible to uh, a large audience. Uh, that includes youth. You know, um, the typical reading age is, is 12 and up, uh, but my uh, fourth grader read it and declared it, quote, good. Uh, my fifth grader read it, too, and said it was uh, and enjoyed it. Um, and so I think it can hit younger readers. But at the same time, 
it's in the language of, of, of James Meredith, and it is. I think it's an it's an easily accessible book for for any adult who wants to read it as well. Just again to sort of get a quick uh, narrative of his story and his perspective. Have you done other books of this format? No, this was definitely a first for me. Uh, and you know, there were, it was a we were a collaboration. There were three people involved in this project, as I mentioned, Vijay Shah, who was sort of the editor who brought us together, and then we had an illustrator, Bill Murray, uh, who's an uh, elderly African American man who who. Had been a cartoonist for uh, Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, uh, really published all, all over the country, including uh, the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier. And so we were a, a unique team of three people. Uh, and, you know, we were doing this during COVID, and in, 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 uh, we were in different pockets of the country. Uh, and so we had to figure out how to collaborate on this. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm used to writing narrative history. You know, words do the work. Uh, so for me, the biggest challenge was finding ways to let images tell the story and, and often we would use a photograph as sort of a launching point for for a panel uh and then there, we'd have all these you know creative visual flourishes that we that we tried to attach to each of them um but uh so that was a, the true adjustment for me uh for bill our illustrator it was the fact that he had to be more historically accurate perhaps uh that he had less leeway uh with with some of the images than he might have had in, in a different context uh, so I think it was a challenge for all of us. It was it was a first for all of us, uh, but we were all we're all thrilled with the final project. With the personality and idiosyncrasies that you mentioned about James Meredith, were you able to capture that in this type of book? We tried to. We definitely tried to. Uh, you know, I think there's sort of two sides to the coin, so to speak. Right? There's this James Meredith as an icon in the midst of in the midst of the. Uh, the Battle of Old Miss, where he, he appears so stoic and brave and courageous, and he is all those things, of course. Uh, but we also tried to get at the roots of that, uh, as we told his early story about you know the the values that his family imparted upon him when he grew up in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, about uh, self reliance, independence, education, discipline. These are all sort of bedrock values for him. Uh, and then, as we narrate the aftermath of his story, we 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 describe the different directions that he goes, the way that he sometimes confounds people, uh, the way that you know, we have him saying, you know, I don't fit anyone's expectation of what a civil rights hero is. And you see him there's a, there's a panel, for instance, of him chiding young activists at the NAACP, which is something he did at a convention in 1963. Uh, so, in different ways, we we do try to convey his complexities. Right? And I think that's an important part of how we tell the history of the civil rights movement that. You know, individuals matter. Uh, the the uh, it, it's a collective movement for social justice, but also it is shaped often by individuals, and they don't always adhere to our own ideas about w- uh, what that movement should look like. But a successful social and political movement relies on people coming from different streams in this river that that, that they merge together under a common cause. And James Meredith is one of those streams, I think. I, I find that uh, interesting and also enlightening in that if you do look at what is written about civil rights leaders, you do get a sense of who they are. You definitely get a sense of their impact um, and also their collaborations with other people. What stood out about him that has been able to make him an icon over the years. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's both his blessing and his curse is his fierce, firm belief in himself and in his special destiny, right? That, ha- that has launched him into these, into, into, into moments in American history 
where he's been a central figure in our drama. Uh, you know, most obviously with the Battle of Ole Miss. That, that really began with his own initiative. You know, no one suggested to him that he should apply to the University of Mississippi. He just simply did. Once he did, then he got the NAACP on board to back his legal challenge. And then once he, uh, once he was able to win his legal challenge, he had the forces of the federal government at his behest to, to enforce his constitutional right to attend the University of Mississippi. But it began with him. Uh, similarly, four years later with the March Against Fear, that was, uh, it started as an individual march, uh, one guy marching from Memphis to Jackson, encouraging people to register to vote. And then when he was shot on the second day, it transformed into, into this mass movement, and, but, and Meredith had this special status. But that same individualism has, often, has sometimes been you know, to his detriment. He hasn't been able to work successfully with others, that he hasn't been able to find his way into a larger movement. And in some ways, he didn't see himself as part of that movement. Um, so you know, he, he plays, again, the sort of paradoxical role uh, in American history that I find really fascinating. Um, and there's much to admire there. And there's also you know, uh, roads not traveled. Aaron Gutsuzian with the Marcus W. Orr Center for the Humanities at the University of Memphis. You are the director of that center. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. History is Lunch is today at noon at the two Mississippi museums. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.